Welcome back to the Attention on Prevention podcast and the final episode of our eight episode April Child Abuse Prevention Series that deep dives into shaken baby syndrome cases. Christine Baker wraps up the series talking about her work in prevention as a program coordinator for Seattle Children's Hospital's Child Protection Advocacy and Outreach Program. Christine tells us that Seattle Children's led a summit to address SBS prevention after seeing SBS cases tripled during the recession in 2008. This summit resulted in a task force consisting of law enforcement, medical professionals, and child protective services officials that ultimately chose the period of purple crying as the state prevention program. Christine details the several years of effort she and her team put into building the program in Washington and the joy of success when she hears from new families who benefited from the period of purple crying education they received in her state. So we invite you to take the time to listen and learn about how we can work together to keep our babies safe from harm. Let's focus our attention on prevention. I'm excited to end our podcast series today with Christine Baker. Christine Baker is going to give us a great perspective on the importance of prevention when it comes to abusive head trauma cases. She's worked in the field for many years and has great insight. Thank you for joining us, Christine. Yes, my pleasure to be here. Tell me a little bit about yourself, what your education is in and who you work for. Yeah, so I work for Seattle Children's Hospital. I have actually worked there for just about 21 years, um, which is quite a long time when I say it out loud. And I originally started out, I attended university here in Washington State and was originally going to go into education and then um, started working with adults with developmental disabilities when I was in college at a group home. And when I graduated, I had a degree in human services, which We could kind of go a lot of different areas with it, but I chose more of a social service public health route and ended up at Seattle Children's just kind of because I wanted to work at Children's Hospital because I believe in the mission. And so started working in insurance randomly. I secured pre-authorizations for radiology exams when I started. I just wanted to get in the door and work at the hospital. So I started at Children's about 21 years ago in insurance processing and ended up working in the clinics after a couple of years. Um, worked in a few outpatient clinics, and then ended up in the Children's Protection Program, which is what it was called at the time. That was the clinical and protection or education branch of the hospital. So been in that doing that work for probably about 17 or 18 years in different capacities. So are you still with that same program or has that changed or evolved? Has the program changed over the years? It's evolved over the years. Um, The programs ended up splitting as the hospital got bigger, and really there was more emphasis on prevention and education. So the program split into what's now called the SCAN or Safe Child and Adolescent Network, which is the clinical response to child abuse. So there's board-certified child abuse physicians, licensed social workers, uh, and other folks within that department that really respond to cases that come into the hospital they also provide medical consultation throughout the state of Washington as child abuse experts. Then the other part split into what's 
um, what we can now call the Protection Advocacy and Outreach Program, which is the department that I work for. And we do more of the prevention and education work. So for a period of time, I worked half in each department and so did some of the clinical pieces um, in terms of coordinating case staffings. So we started staffing child abuse cases that came into the hospital with Child Protective Services, law enforcement, prosecution, any of the medical specialists or staff within the hospital, and then all of the scan or child abuse physicians and staff would all come into one room and talk about cases to kind of all be on the same page and really provide the best care and safety and protection for these kiddos. So I worked with that team and then also the protection of Kisnet Reach with the education and prevention for several years, kind of a foot in both sides. It's really interesting to hear you describe the team, the way that it was structured, how you all met together to evaluate each case to make sure that this child was getting the best care. Because as we've done these podcasts, we've found that everything, you know, the investigator we just met with, the prosecutor that we met with, the pediatrician we met with, they all have something similar in place. And they found that that really is the most effective way to make sure that this child is getting the best care possible to see everyone involved. So it makes me really happy to hear the same thing as Seattle Children's. It is. And it's the most effective way to communicate as well. You have detectives that maybe only see a couple of cases a year or see different types of child abuse cases. It's really helpful for them to be able to sit in a room and have the radiologist go over the x-rays and talk about rib fractures or retinal hemorrhages or things like that and really describe it in layman's or common terms so that they know when they may perhaps they have a suspect in custody that they need to interview they know what to ask and not to ask and what's reasonable you know the rolling up the couch like no that's not a reasonable explanation things like that and so to have everyone in one room it's really helpful to move forward and then to really ask those questions in real time so you so the team kind of everyone on the team is on the same page for protection of this kiddo and how to move forward if there's law enforcement or prosecution or anything else. At what point did Seattle Children's realize like, hey, we see these kids, we see how much um, they are suffering from the abuse, what's being done to them. What role can we have in prevention? And when did that kind of start? Do you know? Yeah. So it was a little before I was doing this prevention work. I was kind of in both areas. But in 2008, as a lot of folks know, there was an economic decline or recession. And there's research out there, um, which I'm sure is on the National Center's website, that talking about a doubling of cases of abusive head trauma throughout the United States. And in our greater Seattle area, we actually saw three times as many cases. So we went from one or two cases a month in the greater kind of Seattle Children's and Harborview Medical Center to three plus cases a month. And so that was when folks really stopped and said, okay, we need to come together and see what's going on with this and how can we prevent this? Because the bottom line is these kiddos, once they're injured, typically come into our hospital for care. And so while we're not a birthing hospital, we do see these kiddos and take care of them once they're injured. And so out of that increase in cases and reflection on that, a task force was convened with folks throughout the whole state of Washington, law enforcement, nurses at birthing hospitals, child protective services workers, nurses within our hospital, and all came together to find some type of prevention or education product or tools to use to help offset this increase in cases. And then that's that coalition or task force 
was the group that kind of just not discovered, but located Pure Purple Crying and decided to use that in Washington State to help provide education for families. Was it Seattle Children's that put this coalition together? Were they kind of like the head of this coalition and gathered all these folks? Yeah, so there was a summit that happened at the hospital. So it's always interesting when I explain to people that we oversee the campaign for purple and abuse fed trauma prevention education in Washington State. We are not a birthing hospital. I'm pretty sure no baby has ever been born at Children's before. But we were the ones that had the resource and also have the notoriety. Seattle Children's is a well-respected institution in our region. And so while we walk the line of not going to communities to tell them what they should do or what would be best, we also do have world-renowned experts and have a lot of respect with our institution. And so we can kind of took on this mission of providing this education and supporting birthing hospitals and community partners that want to provide this education to families. So we do um, oversee the campaign in our state. Was there a program that you first started using before, or did you just go straight into the period of purple crying program? I think there was a couple, there was some more, um, I guess you could say casual or not as formal or research-based education but I don't, my understanding is that there wasn't a large campaign or kind of a cohesive campaign or effort prior to bringing Purple to Washington State. So we do strongly encourage birthing hospitals to use Purple or our community partners. Um, but we also know that some places have systems that work for them. And so we want them to be providing crying education and ideally it would be purple so families are hearing the same messages from their birthing hospital from their pediatrician and all the reinforcing messages there are a couple of community providers that provide different but complementary crying education so while we think purple is the most effective way to provide it we also realize that we don't get to dictate what other organizations use so we just want to provide ourselves as a resource and support them but the majority of hospitals do provide purple. So when you were encouraging these hospitals to start implementing prevention, where do you think most of the resistance came from? I know, you know, nurses are extremely busy. There's a lot of hoops and bureaucracy you have to jump through with administration. I'm sure it wasn't a quick, oh yeah, let's do it. You know, like there was a lot of processes involved. And it took time. We started in 2009 to implement. And we, I would say we were considered a fully implemented state in 2017. So it definitely took several years to reach all of our hospitals. Washington state is divided by a mountain range. There's Eastern Washington, Western Washington. So um, accessing and supporting other hospitals that aren't as close in terms of geographically to Seattle children's. Um, In terms of barriers, I would say it's kind of the idea of one more thing to do. Nurses typically have a lot of education information to go over with families. And so some of the pushback was, this isn't the best place to provide this education for families, which we know the counter to that is that this is really often the one place that families all go through in terms of labor and delivery or childbirth center. And so it's one opportunity that we have an access point to families to provide this education 
there is the cost. It's not a big cost, as we know, for the materials, but that, especially some of the more rural or hospitals that don't have very many births, the cost was a barrier by the materials. And then training. What we found is that organizations that fully implemented um, implemented that what we would consider in the best practice, the most reliable way, definitely incorporated it into their standard documentation. So it's part of the nursing checklist when a family is discharged. The more you can embed this into the process, the more that you ensure that you can maintain fidelity. And so losing the champion or the one nurse who really thought it was important left the whole organization, those kinds of things. The less standardized the process was, the less likely it was to maintain. So helping offset some of those, like kind of anticipatory offsetting some of those things with having it in the policy of the hospital or making it a standard item that their supply services orders and materials, just like you would any other medical supply, not kind of a one-off. And then someone has to figure out how to order it and who do I call again? And it's not going to happen. The more barriers there are, the less likely it is to be implemented and then to be maintained. What do you think led administration to join the prevention effort? I mean, usually it's, you know, you have the the nurse challenges that you just discussed, but administration looks at it very differently. What helped them make that decision? In some ways it depended on the individual organization. For example, one, one place that I can think of, They had a nurse there who was really passionate about purple. They had learned about it. I don't even recall how she had learned about it, but she came to us and said, we want to bring this to our hospital. So she drove the bus, so to speak, and really wanted to implement. And so she helped um, really that really strong champion. Um, We've gone to sites before. We pulled some records. I pulled cases of kiddos that have come into Seattle Children's and went back and looked to see what city they came from their home city, and then if it was documented in a chart, their birthing hospital. So we've seen some trends that way. So we've gone back to hospitals and said, hey, we had two kids that were born at your hospital come to Seattle Children's in the last two years as victims of abusive head trauma. So there's kind of different ways to leverage or convince different hospitals. We also had another organization that had had a baby um, born there and then came back into their emergency department as a shaken baby. And so those, and it was a very small town. And so those nurses that had known the family and then worked in the emergency department were very traumatized by that experience of having this kiddo that was born there come back there injured. And so it depends, there's different catalysts in different organizations, but I would say having a champion self-identify having a case that really profoundly affected staff or having us kind of knock on their door and say, hey, the three other hospitals in your county have implemented this education. How can we help you bring this to your families as well to provide the best quality of care? So there's kind of different strategies that we've used over the years to politely convince. (laughs) I'm not going to say twist anyone's arm. That's a bit aggressive, but, you know, you kind of have to take a different angle depending on what the resistance is, is what I have found. Um, we've had to wait out a couple hospitals where maybe the nurse manager of labor and delivery was adamant that this was not necessary. 
and we tried all the other avenues. And then, I mean, we actually have waited till someone retired and then went back to a new labor and delivery nurse manager who was on board. Each one is a little bit different, but those would be the main trends, I guess I would say. What about other facilities that work with children, child welfare agencies, health departments, home visiting programs? Do you work with those agencies as well? We do. We, um, right as I was coming into this program, our manager at the time worked with Washington Division, DCYF, Division Children, Youth and Family Services. And it was written into Washington state law in 2014 that all DCYF staff So CPS investigators, child welfare workers, as well as anyone in the foster care system are required to learn about PURPLE as part of their education. And they actually provide PURPLE to the families that they work with. So it was written into law. So it's actually a state mandate that this education is provided. It's spelled out in the RCWs, the Revised Code Washington, um, six months and under families are screened and then receive the education, kind of a dose one, dose two, depending on if they receive the materials. And anyone going through the foster care licensing program, uh, actually friends that foster care licensed and they were like, oh, hey, we did the purple education. I'm like, that's amazing. (laughs) So glad to hear that it's still being done as it should be since it is required by state law. So we worked with DCYF. That was something that our manager at the time had connections with. Also, back to those case staffings, we have DCYF supervisors and quality practice folks from DCYF that were part of these case staffings and then would see these abusive head trauma cases and then look at this as like a, a quality of practice or quality of care and a preventative factor. So there's there's the kind of multi-reasons why those case staffings are helpful, but that was one way that we developed that relationship with our DCYF at a state level to provide this education. And we've done a couple of refresher trainings for DCYF staff just because there is a quite a bit of turnover. So it's similar to birthing hospitals in that way a little bit. It's kind of the more you can touch base and provide refreshers and updated information, the more likely they are to keep doing it with fidelity, not just checking the box, which we all know doesn't really help anyone. Well, it seems like no matter the prevention program, having everyone on the same page, utilizing the same program, providing the same messages to families really ensures that the families are understanding that they're not getting mixed messages um, and that they understand the importance, especially like I said, you're hearing it from hospitals, you're hearing it from your health department, your pediatrician. It's all around you. And so it starts becoming ingrained. It's almost like a cultural shift of recognizing that shaking is dangerous. And like with the parent purple crying program, it leads them to understand that crying can be a trigger for the shaking and understanding that crying is normal. That really seems like what you've been focused on in Washington as a whole and has been pretty successful with that. Yeah, I've heard from a lot of nurses in particular who have had children or have adult children who I've heard, I couldn't tell you how many times, I wish I had known this when my kids were young. I wish I had this information. My mother-in-law just told me I had a colicky baby or I spoiled them or kind of those things that we hear that are not helpful to any parent. So I have heard that from a lot of nurses, typically the champions or folks that really connect with this prevention and the normalizing of crying and stress and frustration and anger and that those are normal experiences as parents and then how to handle that. 
So that's those are some of the folks that are the most invested and want to help share this information with people that maybe had their own experience with a high crier or have worked in an organization. We have a nurse that we work with at Seattle Children's that works in our NICU. And so she, you know, we have a lot of these kiddos that maybe have other additional medical issues that maybe they're going to be a fussier baby when they go home. And so really providing this education to those parents, knowing that those kids may be a, a little bit more vulnerable than your quote unquote typically developing infant. So it's, we have those folks who say, I wish I had known this. I wish I had heard this. I feel like this is so important. This would have helped me as a parent or a new parent. So this is really important to share with other people. Have you seen or heard a difference in the delivery of me- of the message where, you know, we've heard in the past that parents have been resistant to hearing about shaken baby syndrome, just because it can be quite traumatic to hear about these children being abused and trying to imagine your own child being abused and they don't think it applies to them compared to a parent hearing a message about the normalcy of crying and how to deal with that crying. Have you heard stories from nurses about that? If that's more successful, it's better received. Yeah, I think it is. And it's one of those things that as a, I have two, two children of my own, one of which was a very high crier. And I think as a parent, there's an automatic feeling of defensiveness. If someone is is like kind of accusing or saying anything, I don't believe any parent goes into having a child thinking that they could abuse their kiddo or they would be one of those parents or that would happen to them. But the reality we, we know from cases and that this does happen and it there well there are risk factors that it can definitely be any family anywhere that can get to that point of frustration so normalizing that and then coming at it from a strength-based perspective rather than an accusatory like oh you seem like someone who might shake their baby i need to give you this education that no this is standard for everybody every family that comes to our hospital or our clinic our lactation center gets this information because all babies go through this phase in varying degrees and it can be very stressful and it can make parents or caregivers very upset and it helps us all if we can talk about it up front and think through how to handle it because everyone will get to this point of to a point of frustration it's just really identifying it and being honest up front these are normal feelings and what do we do with it rather than like well you know babies are going to there's just a different way to look at it and I feel like parents are much more receptive to this is a normal developmental phase all babies go through this it's not you it's not your baby this is what you might experience these are some feelings that you might feel all completely normal and then this is how we handle it setting your baby down safe gently in a safe place calling someone you know all the different tools with the soothing tips and then all the other resources and tips on the app or in the booklet and things like that. So I think looking at it from a positive, supportive, normalizing approach rather than a accusatory. Um, it's also been much more well-received if it's, this is a standard, this is what we do with all families. So you, there aren't families that feel singled out for different reasons, for any reason that this, you know, provide this education to all families that come through our organization. Cause we feel like this is really important information to have. And it's helpful for you and your baby and your relationship and your bond. And you can use these 
skills as your child gets older, because there's going to be lots of frustrating things they do as they get older. So let's build on that skill now. So I think that standardizing, it feels a little kind of clinical and separate, but I think it also helps. It's just the standard thing that we do and provide to all families. So it really can eliminate that feeling singled out that I think some families might feel with this education. Besides purple, does your hospital implement any other prevention programs around abusive head trauma? We provide what I would call a hybrid dose one, dose two. So when families come in to Seattle Children's, whether it's the emergency department or urgent care or their direct admin, if their kiddo is six months and under, part of the intake screening is to ask if they receive peer purple crying education at their birthing hospital. If they did not receive purple, then our nurses will go into dose one, kind of that watch, teach, give with the full dose one. If the family did receive purple, then we have a patient education piece that we developed with the National Center several years ago. It's a two-sided piece. It's a, I think it's a second or third grade reading level. So it's just that supportive reinforcing message for families where they don't need the booklet and the app because they've already received it. And we have that in English, Spanish, Russian, and Vietnamese. And so the nurses can print that on demand to provide that dose to reinforcing. And then they do have a children's national center co-branded piece that they can hand families to give them something. We, we do like to give people a physical handout or something like that to refer back to. So we do have that piece um, that we use that's supportive of purple. We also have a couple of posters and different soothing tips, things that we've developed with other community partners throughout Washington state with different tribes or different with public schools kind of all the different things I've done over the years with a variety of community partners that have wanted specific things. So we have, we worked with the Muckleshoot tribe and they wanted a soothing tips poster that they could put in their crisis nurseries with babies that were born drug affected so that to remind the workers there. And then when the parents or caregivers were picking up their babies, when the workers were going through the baby's day, they could go through some of these soothing tips, kind of that reinforcing message. And so we've done, we've developed a few different things over the years, but they've typically evolved out of more organic conversations and meetings or things like that with community partners that they've asked for things that we've put together for them. With so much of it being collaboration, I'm sure that the COVID-19 pandemic really halted a lot of that work. Um, Did you see that throughout Washington, that COVID had a big impact on prevention efforts? It did. And we were in an interesting situation being a hospital as well. And so we really, nobody went in because we're not, our department is not clinical. And so we you know, we stayed as far away as we could from the hospital. And there was a a worry that this would increase child abuse cases, right? We talked, it came up at the conference that the National Center had, and there was, there's some kind of initial research coming out now, but our concern really with the clinical child abuse team was that you have all these kiddos and parents or caregivers essentially trapped at home in this very stressful situation with not having the eyes on of teachers, childcare workers, coaches, things like that. So there's a real concern of an increase in child abuse, abusive head trauma being one of them as one of the most deadly forms. 
of child abuse. So there was definitely a real concern about that. And so we kind of shifted our abusive head trauma prevention focus a little bit to more taking those messages about stopping, pausing, taking a breath, kind of developed a take five, five step tool that really is kind of similar to the ideas of purple, but that would be broadly applicable to all parents or caregivers at home. There was that real concern that we were going to see a huge spike in serious physical abuse cases. So um, it definitely had an impact on the work that we did. We shifted some to kind of take, so our focus wasn't as narrow with abusive head trauma and really a little bit broader, knowing that this was kind of a, to use an overused word, unprecedented time. And so now that we're mostly out of that, and going back into person, it has definitely shifted the work. We used to go into birthing hospitals and do refresher trainings for nurses, and there's just not the capacity to do that still for the hospitals. And they're just the visitor or infection control. They just don't want other people there, which makes sense. So there's definitely been an impact on this work in terms of access to hospitals and the staff, and then trying to walk that line of not overburdening staff with updates or information when they're still caring for critically ill patients. So I don't, I'm not sure if that exactly answered your question, but it has shifted the work for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. It did. It's kind of an interesting perspective, you know, even at the National Center, we were kind of really curious to see and what the pandemic was going to do, because as you mentioned, people are trapped at home. But at the same time, you had oftentimes two parents at home. And so we were kind of really watching that. And I wasn't sure. I mean, it's just so much workload that the nurses, we hear over and over again about how much burnout that they had during the the pandemic. And I'm sure that prevention was not on the top of their minds when just the health of a child was at the forefront of everyone's mind at the time. Yeah. And kind of being aware of that, we don't want to overburden or expect too much. And then you get the kind of the backlash or the resistance there. So it's walking that balance of we're still here. This is still important work. We're still seeing these cases. Now that things have calmed down a little bit for all of us, let's go back to where we were before and kind of pick up where we, so to speak, we left off with this and then kind of look at what are we missing now? Are there gaps or things falling off that we need to get back to? Like that's a lot of what we're working on now and kind of going into this year is, okay, what were we doing before this all happened? And how can we get back to doing this work in the best and most effective way possible? knowing that we have less potentially less resources now than we did prior to COVID, but obviously still babies are being born and we are still having cases come into Seattle Children's. And so how do we get back to really doing that work the best that we can? With as much work that prevention requires, do you think all that effort is worth it? Yes, that's a good question. I do think it's worth it. It's a hard thing to justify at times. The cost of prevention, right, is a hard thing to demonstrate the value. 
but I work with families that their kiddos have been shaken. There's three or four families that I know pretty closely and have worked with for the, over the last several years. And, you know, one, one of their kiddos was a fatality and one is seriously, um, severely disabled from his injuries at the hands of a babysitter. And then one is relatively high functioning and a young adult now. So knowing these families and their experiences, I think, how can we not, you know, if we can prevent one case, if we can help a family and avoid at least any, even one situation or one case of abuse of pet trauma, then I think it's worth it for that kiddo and their family and their community that it's, you know, it's an uphill battle and it always will be as these things tend to be, but it's worth it. And there's not a way to say, oh, because we did this education, this baby wasn't shaken. There's not really a way that I know of to demonstrate that. But from talking to families and talking to a colleague who him and his wife talked about their experience with purple and my own experience with my high crier, like there's so many not even near misses, but successes of this education and providing this information that I feel like, of course, we need to keep doing it, even if we can't prove how many kids weren't shaken because of this. You know, it's there's still a lot of value, even if we can't necessarily put a dollar amount to it. I'll step off my soapbox version. <laughs> Clearly, mm-hmm. that's why I've been doing this for a while. Now that's why we're all in the same field. We right? completely 100% agree with you. So thank you so much, Christine, for joining us. I think this was fantastic and really allows our listeners to understand why we're all doing what we're doing and why it needs to continue. This hard work is, is really worth it. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.